imagine if each morning when you wake up, you're smiling and looking forward to your day, knowing you are happy even while you're dealing with grief and loss. The Grief and Happiness Podcasts inspires, comforts, and supports you with each new episode. I'm Emily Zerothret, welcoming you to explore with me your life of endless possibilities. Aloha. I am happy to bring Jennifer O'Brien to you today as my guest. She's a delightful person and her book is is unique. I really like it a lot. It's The Hospice Doctor's Widow. And actually, I I have a a lot in common with you, uh, Jennifer. My husband was not a doctor, but he was a bioethicist and his specialty was living and dying. And he brought hospice to our community uh, when it it first got started there and used to facilitate uh, grief and bereavement groups. So and then he died. So we we have a, a kind of a, something in common there. So tell us first a little bit about you. Sure. Thank you. I think perhaps the place to start is actually almost 40 years ago. When I was 18, I lost my only sibling, um, David. Yeah, uh, I was 18. He was 13. And 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 so I'm really been familiar with grief for quite a long time now. And then my mother died died some years later, um, such that many years after that, about 12 years ago, when I met my husband, Bob Lemberg, the fact that he was a palliative care doctor, that he helped families in those difficult times when someone they loved was dying, you know, that was a real head turner for me. Uh, I really understood how important the work that he did was because of those personal losses. And and besides, he was super cute and, <laughs> um, and sweet and smart and all that and funny and all that good stuff. So yeah, so we, he and I fell in love at some point uh, after we met and then, um, yeah, moved moved in together, uh, got married and we're sort of living the dream. He was on faculty at our, at our medical school. We only have one medical school here in Arkansas. And I did what I've always done in my career, which was practice management for large physician organizations, teaching them and then sometimes doing it for an interim period of time. And yeah, and then he found a couple of lumps on the left side of his neck and was diagnosed with a with a stage four metastatic cancer. Lived for twenty two months following the diagnosis. I did the art journal as purely a form of self care. Um, it was never really did it with the intention that it would be a book, but. It kept going with it for about a year and a half after he died, at which point I was doing another one of those leadership jobs in a, in a big practice and a neurologist in that practice who was in the process of diagnosing three different patients with ALS. Mm. Um, I brought my journal in for him to see um, after that conversation and he took it home and he came back the next day and he's like, yeah, you're not getting your journal back. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I will be loaning it to these patients and their spouses. And, you know, you need to figure out how to get that published because it really helps close a gap between what I can do 
as the specialist for the phys- for the patient and what the caregiver, the family caregiver really needs. And so, I mean, Emily, you can imagine how compelling that was, right? I, oh, yeah. I went to work on finding a publisher, which is not always so easy. At least it wasn't for me, but I was lucky enough to find a local independent press that was willing to take a chance on it because as you mentioned, it's a very unusual book and, um, and yeah, and it was released and it, it, yeah, it's, it's been wonderful. That's, that is so great. I know in dealing with all the people I deal with who are in various stages of grief, one of the things that I find helps them a lot is art and participation in something that they're actively doing toward dealing with their grief. And your book offers that. I know this is probably (laughs) kind of strange to be showing the book and the thing, but I just, I love what you do. You can see how she's written you notes about either things that are going on or things to do. And they're all, there's pictures. It's so, it's so easy to read. It's like sitting down and having a conversation with a good friend. Thank you so much for saying that because I I feel like people hear the title of the book and they're like, oh, no, that's too sad. Oh, no, 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 that'll be too hard. I can't. So thanks for the it's easy to read comment because uh, I really appreciate that. I think it is, of course, but but I I love that that somebody else is willing to uh, to declare that. Yeah, well, I just was. um on a, a jet to a work someplace where I was going to do a book signing and I took it with me on board and I read the whole thing. I was, I was on the plane for a while, uh, but I read the whole thing then. And I just kept thinking, this just feels like I've been comforted by somebody I've always known. Oh, oh, Emily, thank you. Yeah. Yes. That's wonderful. Absolutely. I, I, uh, yeah, I mean, that's part of it. I think part of it that it's a journal, right? Because mm-hmm. it was just me saying, this is the deal. And some days it was me saying, man, this is a rough deal. And other days it was, this is a beautiful thing and all everything in between. So, um, so I'm glad you felt that it comforted you in that way. Yes. No, I like that. I, I, the, opposites that are in the book, how, how you just described that in both uh, anticipatory grief, which part of your book is kind of dealing with that, and then the grief that comes after the transition of a loved one, there you've got high points. People always think it's all low points. It's all sad. And, and that's that's not the way it is. And it's wonderful if you can focus on high points and focus on things to do. I discovered for for me that in in dealing with grief, I learned how to draw. I always thought I couldn't draw. I just thought, don't have that talent. You know, <laughs> it doesn't look like anything when I try to draw it. But I could do lots of other things. And sure. I thought, well, I'll, I'll just take a class in drawing. It just looks like it'd be fun. Well, I got kind of hooked on it. And I found that the process of doing something that was just really different for me and expressive really helped me a lot. And I was thinking about that when I was going through your book, because I thought, boy, I, I, I'm a, 
I'm much better now, but I used to be a collector of things. This reminds me of this, and this reminds me of this, and you know, a whole whole bunch of things like that. And I I can see how putting these bits and pieces together for someone, um, not only to read your book, but to take inspiration from it, to do something like this on their own. Like if they want to draw pictures and and comment on them or paste in pictures that they took or letters or cards that people sent you during the, the time and, and create their own special journal book, I think would, I think that's a marvelous idea. Absolutely. I think I, I really art journaling, whatever method it comes by, whether it's an analog collage, which is how I started out years ago, um, you know, cutting and pasting and that sort of thing, or a digital collage. And I am not, I mean, I, I have tried painting and drawing it. <laughs> it was not a hidden talent for me. <laughs> Um, so I, so I have to, um, I have some other ones and I have some, and I'm with you hundred percent on not a bad idea to try something, especially with some guidance, um, during a grief period to try something you've never tried. It is a great way to, to take you out of, out of your norm. And then of course, if you pick something that's creative, that's ideal too, out of your norm, but within the creative realm. Yes, it's it's a release. It's a, you kind of find yourself, your head and your heart going to a different place for a period of time, you know, and kind of uh, like a good dream, you know, forgetting, forgetting for a minute that, that you have a lot of grief in the moment and saying, and just, because uh, I, and I say all this because, after Bob died, I took up, I'm not saying I'm good at it, but I took up watercolor and I took a cup, a class on it. I watched some videos. I took a, a real class and was really into watercolor for about a year after he died. And it, and it was wonderful. I don't do it particularly right now. So, I mean, I, I, I like it still, but I just, I'm not into it doing it right now, but but it was something I had never done before. It was an artistic outlet. It was a perfect, it's, it, it, and a similar thing with the book, with the journal, was that I decided to teach myself. I had a little bit of guidance from like YouTubes and stuff, but I decided to teach myself digital collage when Bob got sick. So a similar kind of a thing, my my head and heart, you know, my heart knew what I wanted to express, but my head had to kick in and figure out how to do it on the computer. And that that kind of work is just absolutely powerful in, in helping you work through grief on a sort of a subconscious level, I think, because you don't necessarily know in the moment, right? It's not a, it's not a good ugly cry. It's not like that. That's a different kind of grief work. This is a much more pleasant kind of grief work. And for me, it's better than working out. Lots of people get hooked on physical stuff and physical stuff is very important, but, um, but it's not, I'm not a sporty spice kind of a gal. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. There's we, we all have different skills and talents that we know about that we have now. Like I'm, I'm a ceramic sculptor and a weaver and a chef or vegan chef and lots of 
I, I've got lots of different uh, credits like that. Did lots in the theater with design and everything. So I've got a real wide, varied background. But there was something about uh, with with both my husbands. Both of them happened to be sick for two years before they died. I cared for them for two years before they died, and they both died of the same thing. Um, oh I, did, I didn't know the second one. The second one didn't know he had the same issue when when we got together, and so it was kind of surprising. But so I had lots of time of thinking, you know, yes. doing, talking. We talked a lot. Both both husbands, we talked a lot, and I I wish now that I would have written down more of what we actually talked about at the time because a lot of it was really profound, but it was really helpful. But I found stepping out of, even though I knew how to do a lot of things, but stepping out of that and trying something different, I think it uses a different part of your brain. And sure. it was really helpful for me. And I've just, I've encouraged people all along to to do something, something creative. I know I had um, one delightful author um, on Oh, she wasn't on my podcast. I, I took a class from her before I started the podcast. That reminds me, I need to get her on the podcast. <laughs> but she she uh, writes children's grief books. Oh, wonderful. And yeah, it's really cool. And one of the things that she did was uh, this little art project that anybody could do by using toilet paper tubes and, and cutting them up in rings and making them into these really beautiful Christmas ornaments. You'd have no idea that that's what it was made out of. And anybody could do it. It was, wasn't hard to do at all. And so she she made a, a video about it and put it online so that people can do it if they want to. But I invited, I, I've met a lot of people now that are dealing with grief in, in a lot of different ways. And so I just invited several of them over last, I think it was end of November, beginning of December. And I said, we're going to make a Christmas ornament. And it was so cool. Even the ones who said, well, I'm not crafty. You know, they could do this. And it it was an opportunity for us to talk. At that time, we were outside and very socially distanced, but <laughs> we could still see what each other were doing. And it it was so, it, it just felt so good. Yeah. To do sure. something totally different, something that you don't know anything about at all, because it's it's freeing. It, it's real easy, I think, to get trapped in in, in your grief and just yes. not be able to to break through. But I, I think being creative, like like you've been with this beautiful book, is uh, is a wonderful way to handle things. Thank you. Yeah. So, what's next for you? Well, what's next is what I've been doing since the book came out, which I, which is that I, you know, the book is about, I'm going to guess it's about two thirds journaling before Bob died and about a third is grief um, and after he died. And so the bulk of my emphasis has been on advocating for family caregivers and for open discussion and preparation for end of life. Um, and so that's what I spend my time doing these days. And I'm, I'm, you know, it's a, it's a getting people to feel comfortable with discussion about end of life is very much a full-time job. 
because there's a lot, a lot of work to be done in that, in that field, because we just don't do it, you know, and yet it's the one thing that happens to everybody. And if you're lucky enough to love someone, the chances are pretty good. And I'm not just talking spouse, of course, at Mm -hmm. this point, parents, siblings, you know, you're going to lose someone, you're going to lose a friend. And, and if we could just talk about it a little bit more, um, in my experience, um, I've done a lot of work with other widows and so forth. And, you know, my case is quite unusual in that Bob and I did pretty much everything we could to prepare for his death and my survivorship, mainly because of his work and because of, like I said, my personal experience and lots of other widows and, and folks that are in, that are in some stage of, of grief that I meet don't have that advantage. They have regrets and, or they have utter chaos, right? Their person died. They're, they refuse to have discussion about any end of life preparation before anybody got sick or after someone got sick. And so they spent an inordinate amount of energy and time, you know, dealing with, well, well, would he want to be cremated or would he want to be buried? And, and, you know, all these questions, that's not grief. That's just consternation. That's just chaos. That's not processing your grief. And so trying to get folks to have some of those conversations and document some of those things and create what I call your croak folder or your death dossier or whatever it is so that when when something happens you're in an accident or you know get a diagnosis things go sideways that the people who love you have something to go on um whether you're able to to communicate or not so yeah that's that's the big job and i have some specifics in that that may or may not come to fruition but for the most part that's that's what i work on these days i was um I was attracted to your podcast um, because of the title and of and the word that I was most drawn to is the and. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I try to help people understand is that the conjunction of choice is and. And that if you really try to replace all of the buts and the ors in your world with and, um, you will you will be far more accurate, number one, and you will probably live a fuller life because most of the time it's an and it's 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 not binary. You know, our, most of our lives are not binary. They're 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 rich and full, and so and is the conjunction of choice. And so, yeah, I am grieving and I am healing. Right? I am I am confused and I have clarity. You know, those the the and is is where it's at. I I agree with you fully. I I love hearing the way you say that because I know with the title of my podcast is grief and happiness. And when I somebody asks me what my title is, and I tell them, they go, "But that doesn't go together. (laughs) How could you have both at the same time?" And I said, "Well, I do, (laughs) and other people can too. And that's that's what I want people to know is that they can. Yeah, and and is really important." Yeah, one of the things that's in that that's actually in my book twice, and it was it was guidance that I learned 
years ago in my in my career from an oncologist was hoping for the best and preparing for the worst and that balance of hoping and preparing and i think part of what happens especially with cancer is that we get into this notion of fighting and winning and um losing and again it's not that binary and whether or not a person is cured of their cancer or goes into remission does not negate the fact that they will die at the end of their life so it's it's so hoping and preparing are both important and both need to happen simultaneously um certainly and especially when you're dealing with an illness um that it, that may that may mean the end of your life or will likely mean the end of your life. So yeah, yeah, I'm into the end, man. Yeah, I, I fully support that. I, I was just thinking about a friend of mine whose husband had had a serious health issue. And at that time, I talked to them both and talked to him about a durable power of attorney for health care and how important that was because they didn't happen to be married. And it's one thing if you've got a husband or wife, they may listen to, but if you don't, they don't, they, they might listen to a child that you haven't seen in 10 years. That's right. And so it's, it's really important to have things in writing and they listened to me and they executed them and they did them. And then he got better and did really well for quite a while. And then something else came up. They couldn't find it any place. They knew they had done it, but they hadn't put it someplace where they could find it. So it's it's important to not only do it, but to remember where it is and, and what you want done with it. And if you change your mind on something, then do it in writing, you know, yeah. make, make sure that you do that so that you still can have exactly what you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've hit on a number of really good points there. That's what I mean by the croak folder. You know, if there was a croak folder, they would know where that document was. And um, it would be one of many in that folder. And uh, and you can change your mind um, mm-hmm. later. Uh, same with healthcare proxies and advanced directives. Um, not it's not the Magna Carta. You know, you 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 can that's one of the reasons you have an ongoing dialogue when when you know when I first met Bob. It was very clear that he wanted no life extending or even saving measures at any point. And we had that conversation early on. And then I was able to touch base with him long before he got sick. Is this still how you feel? Yes, it is. You know, Um, and sometimes it changes, especially, you know, we didn't have any kids, but but sometimes you say, you know what, I really want as little you know, attempt at life extending measure as possible, but there's a grandbaby on the way when, right. When something happens and we say, Oh no, let's try this because she would want to, she would want to try to live to see the grandbaby. And I know she would, because we talked about it, you know, that kind of thing. So, so yeah, so things change. It's, it doesn't have to be set in stone. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons that people hesitate uh, writing things down because they think, yeah, they think yeah. once they write it, yeah, that somebody will go back to it. But if it's a, you know, if it, if it, if there's something written for legal purposes, like your, mm-hmm. like your example, 
Um, and then there's ongoing conversation then with that proxy, with that healthcare power of attorney, then we can work with that. The healthcare world is just looking for who's the decision maker if you can't make them your yourself. And, and that that's all that is. And then the directives are a guidance for that person to, to help make that decision, those decisions, but not, you know, not an edict. Yeah, I think that you're absolutely right that one of the big problems is everybody thinks it's some sort of set and forget document. And if I if I sign um, advanced healthcare directives, I'm I'm signing away all my own agency in, in decision making. And that's simply not the case. That's right. And and it's good to think about things before the time comes so that you do have so an, an idea. Because a lot of times things come up that you didn't anticipate in any way. One thing that happens here, on I live in Maui, and I've heard this happen several times since I've lived here, is that it'll be on the news that a couple came here for the honeymoon and something happened to one of them. One of them, the guy was was out trying out this hike that he wanted to take his new wife on that was supposed to be really good, but he wanted to see what it was first. And he did it by himself, totally unfamiliar with the area, went over the edge and that was it. Right. And that, you know what, that's a great point um, that I hadn't even thought about is the, the, you know, honeymoon deaths. I mean, and there, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, of course, where you live, that happens. And of course, anybody who lives in the Caribbean, you know, has that happen occasionally. So um, any of those destinations. Um, I like, you're giving me an idea. I'm going to work on that. The, the prenuptial advanced directives. Oh, that, <laughs> wow. That's awesome. I never thought of it, putting it that way before, but that's really, really good. Yeah. For, for one thing, anybody who's getting married, if they can't have that discussion, maybe they need to think about getting married. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, I think it's a really wise discussion to have and and to put things down in writing. Because I've seen oh, this one was tragic. My my husband was in the emergency room and, and in our emergency room, there are some bays that have just a curtain between them. And this couple came into the, the bay next to us and they they were young and she she was describing her symptoms to her husband, and I thought she's having a stroke. And for one thing, the hospital has all these. If you see this, it, it could be a stroke. Tell somebody. You know, they were they were all over the place. But I, from my work that I've done in my past, I I knew very well what symptoms of a stroke were. But I I was frustrated because they just put her in there and kind of left her. And we were in there for quite a while, that particular visit. And at one point they came in and it was a right now emergency and they rushed her off someplace else and it was a big deal. And I didn't know at that time that it had been diagnosed as a stroke, but I was thinking that that probably was what happened. My husband ended up being admitted to the hospital and she was admitted um, on she, from ICU to the floor where he was on. And I could... You know, you're sitting there for hours, you hear the conversations that are going on outside the door. And her family was saying, oh, she's getting better. It's 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 better. And then I had to to walk out 
down toward the nurse's station for something. And I saw her on a gurney and they were rushing her off and they were saying she's had another stroke. So that's why I knew it it was a stroke and they were in no way set to deal with something like that. Right. Right. That's, that's not what you come to, to Maui for, you know? Right. Right. So you don't have your, your support system that you'd have if it happened at home and they're asking you all kinds of questions and you don't know how to answer them because that's not in your frame of reference. Right. So I, I think whatever age you are, it's something that you need to think about. And that's not morbid. No, if you're 18 or older, I mean, you got a kid going away to college. Guess what? You need to have some of these conversations That's right. and those advanced directives need to be set and the healthcare proxy needs to be designated. It needs to be loaded into the smartphone. There's a medical ID place in your smartphone and there's a way to set it so that the medical ID is accessible even when the phone is locked. Wow, um, that's cool. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, cool. actually, I have a resource on my website called the At Peace Toolkit, which is a guide to feeling at peace with end of life. And it's a free downloadable. So anybody can go on my website and download it. And the first, it's basically a big three-step process. Mm -hmm. The first step is how to load your medical ID into your smartphone. Um, that actually could save your life. Um Mm -hmm. But yes, if your kid is going away to college, guess what? Uh, that needs to happen. And a healthcare proxy needs to be designated because there is just no, no telling. Um, and if the kid's 18, kid's an adult or older. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I love this prenuptial uh, idea. I'm, I'm, I'm my, the, the wheels are already <laughs> turning on that. <laughs> well, that's great. <laughs> I, I love it too. That's it's such a good idea. And I, I love what you're saying about the phone because everybody has a phone now. And even kids have phones and they could have on, on their phone things that somebody would need to know. If somebody takes them to the ER from school, the ER needs to know are they on medication or are they a juvenile diabetic or you know what's going on and if it's right there on their phone then they can right. they can get it and it, it and uh, the ER staff accesses people's phones that mm -hmm. one of the and the and the hospice you know there's there's a whole I I work uh, I have a friend and associate who is a social worker both in emergency settings and in hospice settings and she frequently. Um, is in a situation where all she has is the is the patient's phone. And so, yes, it is a real thing and it can really be very helpful. Well, I'm going to put your address to your website in the show notes so that everybody who wants to, and everybody wants to do this, can look up uh, how to do it and what's entailed there. Because I just strongly encourage not only you, but everybody you know, your family yes. especially, and your loved ones, to uh, take some responsibility here and have these hard conversations. Because, you know, they're only hard until the first time. And after you you break the ice, then it's easier to talk about things like that. In Absolutely. The and, and the other thing, Emily, that I would say is sometimes the conversation is happening without it necessarily being the conversation, right? So you're watching a movie and there's a 
there's a scene where someone has to be intubated or someone is put on organ support or what, whatever it is. And that, that discussion can come up quite organically. And then, you know, later you can say, hey, you know, when we were watching the movie, we talked about this. I'd, I'd like to go ahead and get some stuff down officially. So it doesn't have to be, oh, my God, we have to have the talk and leave <laughs> me alone. I don't want to talk about it. Um, it, it really or a friend, you know, somebody has to go to the, you know, someone strokes or someone has to go to the ER for something. That's a great opportunity to say this to your person or your people who love, who you love. This brings to mind the idea that if God forbid that happens to you, I want to know what to do to demonstrate my love and support in the way that you want to see it. And, you know, like I said, in this work I do, the Pew Pew Research did a study in 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 2013 where they really looked at Americans' views on end of life, and we are really split on when we're diagnosed with something and we would be dependent on someone else for most of our daily activities. When we're diagnosed or have an accident and we would be in pain and and have suffering, there is a pretty distinct you know, split between who wants, between those who want just to be kept comfortable till until they die in those situations and those who want every life extending measure. My late husband used to, used to tell patients and families about his own parents. Both lived into their nineties. His father had said all along, you know, the minute I start to show a sign of decline, just keep me comfortable to us till I die. The mother said every life extending measure known to humankind, um, I want it all. And the the right two ends of the spectrum. And both of those answers are the right answer, right? Mm-hmm. Because the right answer is your answer. I don't care what's in your directives. I don't care what's in your preferences. I just care that they're done and that they've been communicated with the person, you know, who can who can follow through on that. It it that's the most important thing. We that we and like I said, we're pretty evenly divided, um, and there doesn't seem to be any correlation, socioeconomic, gender, any of those things. So even in a, in your same family, you know, this brother can say I want everything, and this sister can say I want just to be kept comfortable, right? And until you have those discussions and until you commit those thoughts to paper, you you have no guidance, right? You have, and especially some of these folks who refuse to discuss anything, right? So then the time comes and it's like, holy Toledo, I don't know what this person wants. I know what I would want, but what you would want doesn't, doesn't matter in this case, right? So yeah. Yeah, so so important. So also so intimate. Okay, mm-hmm. that that's the other thing about end of life preparation and and caregiving is is leaning in and having and engaging with that difficulty and having those conversations. I mean, there is there is no greater closeness than what Bob and I did, and the fact that I was able to carry out his every last wish until his last breath and beyond. And I, I feel so honored to, to have done that. So intimate 
and honor these these are these are important things in our relationships and then ultimately it's very comforting as i process the grief of losing him that i that i did everything that he wanted nothing that he didn't want and uh and i gave him you know the death and the and the and the disposition and the legacy that that he asked for and you know that feels so good when you know that you've done that does it it really can make all the difference in in how you look back upon your life and your relationship and everything else when you know that you've you've given them that them that gift absolutely wow well it has been so wonderful talking to you today i'm i want to let you go so you'll go get started on your new project to us <laughs> Yeah, you asked me what was next, and I think you just gave it to me in this conversation. <laughs> that is so cool. I'm happy to be the inspiration. That's that's so cool, and I want to see it when when you get it up. I, yeah. And I encourage everybody to go to her website and get that information and act on it. Don't just think about it, but actually act on it and know where you put it after you acted on it. And get her book. Her book is also a really good gift for friends when you don't know what to give or do when somebody's bereaved. I always say a book is so much better than flowers that wilt in a couple of days and you throw them away. You'll always have that book that you can turn back to. Yeah. So, thank you very much for being here today. And I thank my listeners for listening once again to the Grief and Happiness podcast. And I can't wait to see you again next week. Wonderful. Thank you, Emily. My pleasure. Do you want more comfort, support, and happiness? Join the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Visit my website at lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com and read my book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, and binge on all our episodes on grief and happiness. I can't wait to welcome you back to another episode 